You're listening to a Hebrew and Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at HebrewInIsrael.net. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Hebrew and Israel Haftarah series. I'm your host, Yaral Halevi of HebrewandIsrael.net, and I'm glad you're back with me again. I want to say thank you to everyone for the positive feedback that I've been receiving on this series, and specifically the comments about the history and background and in episodes where, where, where it does apply. And it's very heartwarming to hear that what I do is actually helping people, it's giving people insight and that it helps everyone actually have a better understanding of the biblical text. This week, I think that um, probably one of my favorite stories, it has a few really interesting pieces in it. Uh, It's not really one story, we're going to be reading two different stories, uh, two separate stories about uh, Elisha or Elisha. And the information we're going to get here today is um, less historical, I would say, um, and more about understanding the composition of the Book of Kings. The Book of Kings is a really, really interesting book. I mean, it's actually one of my favorite books. Um, that and Kohelet, two books that I've been studying for years now. And one of the really interesting things about the Book of Kings is, first of all, the Book of Kings is really not supposed to be divided into two different books that we have, or the division that we're used to is not really the real division of the Book of Kings. The Book of Kings is divided to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, but really in the Jewish Bible, it's just one. It's one large book. Uh, more so that it was actually was a period where 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the two books of Kings were actually considered to be one larger book known as Kings 1, 2, 3, 4, not in the Jewish division, but actually in the Christian division. Now, what's very, very interesting besides that is the layering of the book, because we, we have a lot of different pieces that exist in the book simultaneously. We have narrative, which tells us stories, which tells us about occurrences more in a narrative way. Then we have um, descriptions, uh, which are more chronico- chron- chronological, meaning that they are they seem to be more a, a short description of something that happened with a specific king. And sometimes it's really hard to kind of work through the pieces there because sometimes... Um, we're only getting like a glimpse of what was going on with this person, and then we get all these other stories that describe them. Um, I actually personally wrote a, a research paper uh, that's peer-reviewed, uh, but unfortunately it's only in Hebrew right now. Uh, but I wrote a research paper, for example, about King Ahaz, and um, I, when I proposed the, um, the paper to my professor, uh, I got a funny look of, this is a brilliant idea, but you're also putting yourself in a corner here because this is a very, very difficult subject. And I said, why? He said, well, look at it. It's, there's only one chapter about King Ahaz, one real chapter about King Ahaz, and it's built from some like three short pieces, all more or less taken from a chronology from somewhere, and you're somehow supposed to take that chapter and squeeze it into the historical background it was in. And while writing this paper, I realized that proposing a historical reconstruction of what happened in that period was going to be very, very difficult. So I actually proposed to my professor, I said, well, maybe I shouldn't try to present a chronological reconstruction, just give uh, more of the insights that exist regarding the um, what exactly happened there. And then obviously give my own insight and so on. Um, I'm glad to say I actually got a really, really good grade for that for that research paper. Uh, and this is, by the way, um, 
to, to point out a slight difference, there's always this joke when I speak with my American friends about um, writing research papers. These are research papers that go to 30, 40, 50 pages long. This is this is stuff you usually write for your, uh, this is this is not like, you know, a 10 page thing that you have to give in. Uh, this, this took several months to write, but it, it demonstrated to me how difficult and layered the Book of Kings is. And this is really the, the real point. So when you go through the Book of Kings, as I said, there's chronological information, there's narrative, and then we have this really, really curious thing. We have prophecy stories, or, or what we call stories of prophets, what they call Sipurei Nevi'im, um, which um, there's actually uh, uh, several books that I've seen about this subject, specifically one of them, which is one of my favorites, is by Dr. Alexander Rofet, which I've mentioned before. And he tries to break down all these different stories to try to understand what, what's really going on there and what's the backdrop. And these are this is a really interesting thing because we actually have a reference to the specific story we're going to be reading today. We, we actually have a reference to the way they passed on these stories from person to person to a point where um, the king of Israel is sitting with someone and says to him, tell me more stories, more or less. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And and the pro, and the man standing there says, "Look, that's the person um, that was resurrected." If I remember correctly, that's a really remember that that story really edged into my mind because the uh, description there is of these were oral stories that were passed on from one person to the other. But what's really interesting is is what the purpose of these stories are, and the purpose back then is the exact same purpose that we have today. This this is why these stories were put down into writing, because they're here to encourage us. They're here to show us that God never really abandoned his people. And the stories we're going to be reading today are specifically of that nature. And it's really, really interesting because we're reading in a we're reading stories instead of period where things were not doing we're not going very very well for Israel. It's it's something that a lot of people don't really uh, comprehend because you have to understand that the Assyrians are always breathing down the neck of the nations living in this region. Israel was in open conflict with the Arameans all the time, almost all the time, except for periods where we know that they, they had, to, had actually had to work together. But this is a, this is a period where there's a threat always from the Arameans. The Egyptians not so not so much, but the Egyptians are in the background as well. Israel is in a conflict with Judah, with a con in a conflict with Moab. Um, we actually know that the Moabites eventually pushed the, the northern kingdom out of their lands. We know this from the, the Meshastela. And this is, this is always a period of turmoil where we also have a lot of people of faith, men and women of faith, who are being marginalized by, uh, by the, the overall behavior of everyone, which means that we're talking about stories that, of people who do actual miracles and their purpose is to show that God is still there, God is still, God is still doing the impossible, and the stories here are considered to be stories of the impossible because we have two elements which are considered to be divine abilities. One of them is sustenance, food, almost like a manna story. And then we also have the control over life and death in two perspectives. One of them is actually giving birth, which was considered to be a a mass a, a power that, that, that was something that gods would gift. If you, for example, read the stories of Akhat and specifically, these are Ugaritic stories, and specifically the stories of Daniel, which is the Daniel or Daniel, which is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. There's no doubt about that. You can go, I have a video where I discuss this, on, a video on YouTube where I discuss this. And um, and then we also have the, the actual ability to resurrect with a few messages inside that story. So God is 
acting through his prophet to prove that he's still here, to prove that he still has power, and to prove that no matter what you do, he can still act even in the small aspects of life. Now, I'm a person that usually says, we have little miracles in our lives, but we also need to understand that sometimes things are only are mostly on the grander scale because we have to remember that we are still dealing with the principle of being a nation. And being a nation means that sometimes your individuality gets pushed aside a little bit. And this is actually something I've been dealing with the last couple of months, discussing this a lot, not just with my, myself and my family, but also with friends, where the, the, the idea of nation has been dying out for a very, very, very long time now because people are raising the principle of the individuality, which is, which is not a terrible thing by itself, but the moment individuality starts taking over and, and completely um, marginalizes the idea of a nation, it weakens us as groups. It weakens us when we have enemies. Enemies will always exist. There's nothing you can do about it. The idea of the, the, the globality of mankind, but then the individuality of mankind is a principle that clashes with it. The two principles that clash with one another because they don't really represent the, the idea of how to exist as a society. And without society, you will have nothing. If people only take care of themselves, then commerce completely dies out, government completely dies out. I know there's some people who think that government dying is a good thing, but it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. This is, by the way, the, the conflict that they were having during the, the, the beginning of the stories that we read, the beginning, not stories, but the these are stories, but when I use terminology like this, sometimes I get people say, it's not just a story. I wasn't saying it's just a story. Um, but when you read the book of, the book of, um, of Judges, for example, and the book of Samuel, you see that leadership is needed, but yet they're kind of like stepping away from it sometimes because they have difficulty with it. And, and this is really some of what the prophets were doing. This is some of the idea of what the prophets were doing, where they were trying to balance this idea of we need leadership, but we mustn't forget that God is really our king. And that's the back and forth situation that they have with. And, and this is what these stories are for. They're here to say, listen, an individual, this is a man of God, and Elisha is actually referred to as Isha Elohim, which was, is one of the highest um, um, titles a person can have. I think the highest one is Eved, Eved Adonai, which is considered to be the servant of the Lord. It's the, the highest level. But Isha Elohim is not too far away from that. And, and he's here to do actions that everyone else can hear about to show God is still here. And this king that you have, he needs to be obedient to God. And that's, if you read a lot of the stories specifically from the northern kingdom and the way they're depicted, they, they go through this process all the time. They, a prophet shows up in front of the king, tells him what to do. The king either repents or doesn't. And they, they have this ongoing dance, which, which, is, which is really, really interesting because when you start reading between the lines, you notice that the kings of Israel, with all the descriptions of them being wicked, were very aware of the problem of what they're doing, which, which raises some questions about how things are being described to us and, and what's really hiding underneath the information. Um, this is something, obviously, that has to be discussed in a much more detailed way. Um, I have been thinking of writing papers or making recordings that relate specifically to the Book of Kings, but again, I have a lot of ideas that, that are on the back burner all the time because there are a lot of things that have to be done. But I think that the Book of Kings is a very misunderstood book because 
a lot of what we read in it is also our interpretation via very, very specific glasses, specifically the idea that the Northern Kingdom is always wicked. And this is not necessarily the case. We, we actually see where some kings were very, very aware of the problems of what they're doing. Sometimes people wake up. And also we need to understand that we're seeing this always from the perspective, or mostly from the perspective of the kings themselves. We don't hear much about the people. Every once in a while we hear about the people. And this is one of the things these stories do. Specifically, the story deals with, with a... Uh, with, probably two women you can debate if it's really two women or not um sometimes again I, the reason i say this is because sometimes certain pieces of information get jumbled together but i would say this is probably two separate women there are some elements you know there's there's there are two women and the, the way you recognize the difference between them is one has children the other one doesn't but because not everything is always in chronological order this might be a woman that had children and then um, no, didn't have children in the beginning, then, then had the first child, maybe a second child showed up, and then we have um, and then we have another story that came later about the same woman, but she already has her two children. But again, that's kind of like what we can call academic hula hooping. It's, it's sometimes games you can play. I'm not sure if anyone actually makes this claim, but I have noticed similar arguments about other places around the Bible. However, um, I would say that um, I would say that that mostly what's going on here is that there's similarities here. There's women. There's an element with children. There's obviously a fear, um, a concern. Uh, the prophet steps in and helps. There's a, a husband who's kind of absent as well. In the first one, the husband is not alive. In the second one, the husband is just old. We don't really hear anything from him. The women are very, very active. And this is very interesting, like specifically women. Usually we hear this whole thing about the Bible is a story of men, and it's usually the history of mankind overall. It's usually different from the perspective of men. But here we actually hear about a prophet that interacts with two women, and he helps them. Now, this is a really interesting thing because um, it, it's very, very common in traditional societies that a man, especially if it's a man who who's, uh, has a prominent position in the community and everything, never really comes in contact with women. Now, this is not the case in the United States, in Christian society, but for example, in Mediterranean society, uh, specifically if you come from a, from a much more Middle Eastern society, usually you keep your distance. But here, he, he actually steps in and helps, which gives us which gives us a kind of an idea of maybe leaders need to, to learn to be accessible to everyone. But again, today with, with some of the stuff that goes on, it's always very, very, very scary. Uh, but this really shows us a very, very different attitude of a prophet towards, um, as a leader, what, what should he or shouldn't he do when it comes to women? And we see that the interaction is actually permissible, but obviously there's, there, there are agreements, there are, there's understood ideas of what allow, what's allowed and what's forbidden um, in this type of behavior. But in any case, it's very intriguing that uh, the stories about Elisha involve two women. It's, 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 it is considered to be relatively unusual. And, and I'll point this out because, the reason I point this out is because later on we'll talk about interpretation of a specific verse and, and how things get interpreted. 
and 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 you'll see why I bring this up. So we first we have a very very long reading. Um, I'm actually going to take the longest reading there is, which is um, which is 30 plus verses. So we are in Second Kings chapter four, and we're going to be reading the majority of the chapter. This is so long that I might start skipping things. You can notice I'm actually keeping the introduction very very short. So the first story is a story about a woman who has two children, and her husband passes away, and there's a, a, a debt collector. A person she owes a debt to that she has to repay and if she doesn't repay he'll take her children away now this is a really strange situation because in truth the torah doesn't allow uh, a debt collector to to take away someone's children i've seen commentaries that try to connect this to things like an exodus and so on but the uh the problem that we have here is even even when you have a debt, there's a massive question here about um, taking someone away because of a debt. We're probably seeing here something that goes outside of the spectrum of of ensla- enslaving someone in uh, the Torah itself. This is could be could be why the outcry is so serious that she's trying to describe to the prophet something that is outside of the Torah laws. Because we find here that these characters are Torah observant. Specifically, if we take the parallel of two women, one of them actually goes on the Shabbat or the new moon to go see the the prophet. Which means these these two women are parallel to one another. Which means they're both Torah observant. They they both uh, look at the Torah the way it should be done. And she turns around and she says, "The debt collector wants to take away my children." Now, if you go back to Exodus, it says if a person sells themselves as as a slave. There has to be a voluntary action of selling oneself, or if you go also to the rules, if I remember correctly, it's in Deuteronomy, it says if a person steals, then they're sold by their theft. Here, this is a debt. Now, the thing about debt as well is that we have to remember that the law is that on the seventh year, that any debt is taken away, which means is, is, is forfeited, which means that what we're probably reading here is outside of what the Torah allows. And what we're seeing here is an, as someone in the northern kingdom probably following a law that's, uh, that was introduced by Mesopotamian law, but not by Israelite law, because Israelite law respects the human condition, respects human beings, and prefers not to enter Israelites into this into the state of servitude, which means that what we're looking at here contradicts the morality of the Torah. And yes, some people argue what exactly you know what exactly is the morality of the Torah. Some people point out, look, this type of behavior is, is not moral. Well, standard of moral changes all the time. You should know that when you study the 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 principles of morality, um, it changes throughout time. What was considered moral 20 years ago is now immoral. Um, some things that people think are moral today are probably immoral by other standards. So when people discuss morality, I remember I had a discussion years ago with this lady, and everyone tries to be very philosophical and everything, but no one really understands the principles of, of philosophy or morality. There are actually people who, who study this uh, in a much more serious way, like, for example, Professor Asa Kashel here in Israel, who, who's, a, who's an expert in this field, and he sometimes comes out and he gives, he gives ideas of what morality should be like, and some people really don't like it because it doesn't fit some idea that they have he's trying to create a, a, a general generalized idea of what morality is and to work from there but everyone tries to squeeze in whatever they perceive moral mostly because of their own personal reality and perspective and not necessarily from a much more larger humanity perspective of what should and shouldn't be shouldn't be done so when people discuss morality it's it's a very very relative term 
But in any case, what we actually have here is probably a situation which uh, contradicts Torah law and not, and not something that we should actually consider to be something that the Torah actually allows, which does indicate to us that uh, there is the possibility here that um, we have this possibility here that we are reading a reality of corruption at the time and specifically a person who is loyal to God is the one who's being used to to show how immoral this story, how immoral the situation is. Um, but what's really, really interesting is the prophet actually steps in and tries to find a solution for her she can, that she can pay back her debt, which raises the question of was there another maybe layer of civic law, and I'm, I'm going to about to contradict myself for a second here, could have there been a civic law uh, imposed by the king that allowed people under certain circumstances to take someone's into slavery. And, and, and that's, a, that's something that was proposed when I was studying the Book of Kings. It was proposed that there was such an idea that we have the Torah law, which is, which is um, held by the priests, and the priests are the ones who make the decisions on it. But kings felt that they, have the power, they had the power to override certain situations and allow the judgment of the king. So we might be dealing with this. So this can also be a type of reflection onto the kings themselves, um, showing that the corruption is mostly from the king and there were people who were using uh, this corruption, were using this structure of, of kingship for their own advantage and were ignoring the Torah. Okay, so we need to start reading this text. It says, One woman, a, speci a specific woman, we never really get her name here. It's a very common thing that you don't have the name of people especially women. It's, it's a really interesting thing. But omission of names is not unusual. We actually know that even in royal inscriptions in the ancient world, even if there was someone important, they sometimes omitted their name. Uh, whoever was reporting by it would omit their name because it was irrelevant to them as a person. Maybe also to keep this story more generalized, more uh, um, less personal so it can speak to everyone you remove the person's name so it doesn't become the, the story of this person it becomes the story of all all people and also it's very interesting and I, something else came to mind the fact that these are women women were a women technically were a protected class especially widows so there's an issue here of civic justice being being uh, opposed to Torah justice where you have to take care of the widow here uh, and the fatherless here the prophet steps in and he becomes a symbol to the idea of protecting uh, the, these two protected groups, but also protecting the laws of the Torah. So there's, you know, there's some elements here which are hiding in between because classically we say, you know, we, we rarely have any information about Torah keeping in ancient Israel, but we actually do when you look between the lines as well. So she is, she is uh, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, B'nanevim. B'nanevim really means uh, people who were trying uh, to become prophets or were associated of the, with the class of prophets. Uh, we actually hear several ideas like this in several places. And uh, this person might have been a professional prophet or something like that. And this was his income or his work was related to the, to the school of prophets. And there's a very famous debate if, if there was such a thing and there were students of the prophets and so on. Um, it's a very famous debate about prophecy and overall. Yecheskel um, Koifman versus, um, I think it was uh, uh, one, one of the very, very early um, 
one of the very, very early German school of thought that they thought maybe there's some kind of a, a prophetic school, so they're the ones who came up with some of the some of the books that we have, and it was their perspective, because everyone tries to put everything into boxes, like, you know, oh, we have the school of the prophets, and we have the school of the priests, and we have this, and it's, it's part of the idea of arguing that there are uh, different schools of thought which produce different documents, and that's how the Bible was created. Kaufman actually completely rejects it, he says there's no actual evidence that these were the students of, 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 of Isaiah, for example, stuff like that. He says there's no actual evidence, this is pure speculation, but we do know that there were prophets and there were people who followed these prophets. So there, there's, there, there isn't much truth, I would say, into the argument that they produced documents, but there is truth into the fact that they were uh, another type of leadership, because remember, we have the king, we have the priests, and we have the prophets, and they all balance out one another. Specifically, the prophets are supposed to balance everyone out, because when you read basically from the beginning, uh, but when you specifically read the book of Judges, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, you can actually see this idea that when there's a corruption in one of the, one of the two main leaderships, which is the kingship and the priesthood, uh, the prophets step in and warn them. Same thing happened with Eli in, in Shiloh. Same thing happens with the kings over and over again. So she, she apparently, her husband passes away, which means her income drops. Her income becomes almost non-existent. He probably didn't have any fields and any, any other income except for being a professional prophet. And she gets into trouble. And she's tsa'aka. So tsa'ak, which means to call out this tsa'ak and the za'ak. These are two very similar uh, verbs. Za'ak is usually when there's violence. Tsa'ak is usually when you call out to someone for help. And she's basically calling out specifically to Elisha, which means her husband was probably associated with groups connected to Elisha. And this is why you know, him being the head was the one to speak with. So she calls out to him, Lemo, saying, Avdecha ishimet, vatayadata ki avdecha hayayaret adonai. So she says, my, your servant, my husband, has, has died, and you knew that, my, that your servant was fearful of the Lord. And the, tax, the debt collector has come to take two of my, two, two of my, two, either two of my sons or my two sons, which probably tra- should be translated as my two sons, uh, to him as servants. And Elisha said to her, And he said to her, what can I do for you? Lach usually means to you, but here it really means for you. Uh, Tell me what you have in the house. Your your female servant, she's basically associating herself the same way, she says, the same way my husband was loyal, I am loyal on the same level. So your female servant, Shifcha, usually has a very negative connotation because usually shifcha just means a, a slave uh, uh, in a very negative sense. But here it's not. It's just basically, uh, she doesn't, she, it's interesting she doesn't use the term amatecha, which is the one we would expect um, in other places when you talk about evid and evid and, and, and ama. Those are two word couples that come together. Here she, she, here she refers to shifcha, either probably because of a dialectal issue of her them living in the north, or because there are differences between Judean Hebrew and northern Hebrew, Israeli Hebrew as they call it, and um, and and it, or that we're looking at at she's using a, a word that might be even more lessering of oneself to make sure that it's um, that to show that she's completely humbled before the prophet, really looking for um, for help. She says, "I have nothing in the house." Except for a small container, asuch shaman, lasuch is to, to, to actually pour some oil. She's talking about a very, very small quantity. Pour a quantity, it's enough to put on your hands and maybe in your hair and a little bit on your face because oil was used 
um, to protect the skin from the dryness. If you remember, we have very serious dry spells here in Israel where sometimes it gets so dry, um, everything starts peeling, and uh, we have weather like this every once in a while. So they maybe had some like small containers. It's a very, very small quantity. There's no real way of knowing how much it was, but it's a, apparently a very small quantity. So he says, So he says, Go borrow for yourself vessels from the outside. So this is very interesting. So she goes out and she starts collecting vessels from everyone, making it really, really famous that some, a miracle is about to happen. But then the miracle happens in closed doors. So there's an element here of the private situation, but also the public situation to make it clear that God is still with Israel, but also taking care of the individuality of this lady. So he says, go and collect for yourself vessels from the outside, me'et kor from all your neighbors. And there's a really interesting dialectal issue here. Every time he refers to her, uh, almost every time, but many times he refers to her, the kri, which is what we write, and the, sorry, the kri is what we read, and the ktiv, what we write, are a little different, showing a dialectal difference in the text, which indicates that the Masoretes preserved probably some elements of Israeli and Hebrew, even though Israeli and Hebrew was almost almost non-existent by, by the point the Masoretes, well, actually, was non-existent completely, uh, but um, they were able to preserve some elements of it, which is really, really interesting. He says, go collect... Empty, empty vessels do not do not skinge, do not have don't collect a little bit of them. Go collect from everyone, large, large quantities. So he's also uh, making sure not only to take care of that specific situation of the, her, her specific case of paying back the debt, but also taking care of her in the future as well. So he's not just solving this one individual problem. He's actually taking care of her. She's a loyal person. This is a message to everyone. If you are loyal to the God of Israel, you will be taken care of. Even if everyone else around you is going to be in a bad situation, he is going to take care of you. And I've pointed this out many, many times that many of the stories of, and pro, stories of the prophets and prophecies are stories of hope, not just gloom and doom. A lot of it is about pointing out hope, pointing out that there is a Savior and you, you can be redeemed. And redeemed is usually in the physical sense in the Bible, but you can be redeemed when necessary. It says, This is verse 4, and you, will, and you enter the house, and you will close the door behind you and behind your son. So, Be'ad is into your favor, which really means you're behind the door, you're closing it, it's protecting you. And you will pour on all these vessels, which really translates into all these vessels. And what's is full, you will remove. So, basically, work as a team. Pour in, when it finishes, move, bring another one in. So verse 5 says, So she went from him. So obviously she went to where he was. It means that it was famous where he sat, which connects again this woman with the next woman because they both go to see where he's at. So he obviously sits in a specific location, a specific town. And it's really interesting. There's this motif about Elisha that he keeps on people keep on going to him instead of people, you know, he, he does his tour, but he's also always where he lives. So there's points where we hear stories where he's traveling around the Jordan Valley and so on, but then we have several stories. Here, the next story, one of the, the story about um, the king of Aram, um, and we have the story of Naaman as well with the leprosy. We have multiple stories where they all come to him. So he's obviously famous. He sits in a very specific location. Everyone knows where to find him, which, by the way, makes a lot of sense because if he's always traveling, if he's like Samuel and he traveled around all the time, he was able to help different places, but he was never, you know, had to track him down. Elisha seems to be unlike Eliyahu, unlike Elijah. He stays in one place, and then people know where to find him, 
when they when they need specific uh, specific help. So it's a really interesting uh, difference in reality between um, between how they functioned. So um, so she 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 goes from him, but this girl she closes the door with with her and her sons behind the door. So they're giving her the vessels, and she is pouring in. When the vessels were full and, and basically completed, there were no more vessels. And she said to her son, give me, give me, bring forth another vessel. And he said to her, there are no more kelim, there's no more vessels. There's no, there, no more vessel, he basically says. And the, and, the, and the oil stood, which means the oil stopped. Uh, remember that Hebrew uses, utilizes a lot of different words to mean different things. And this is why when you study biblical Hebrew, and again, as I've mentioned before, I teach biblical Hebrew um, on a very, very high level, but obviously each person based on where they are. Um, and uh, if you are interesting, the, interested, there are details on the, on the website. You can go li- you can go read what I have there, HebrewInIsrael.net. Also, this is an opportunity to remind everyone, if what I do has blessed you, please consider to donate so I can continue this work. So then he continues and says, verse 7, So she came and she said to the man of Elohim, so she's going, he's not referred to as Elisha, she's referred to as Isha Elohim, because he's functioning here as the person who gives her the information of what to do. So now there's this idea of changing the title of a person based on their function. So as you can see, for example, with uh, the Levite who goes and lives in Micha's house, or Micah, as you say in English, and uh, he's referred to as, as the Levi, but then... Um, when he functions as a Kohen, he's suddenly referred to as the Kohen. Uh, you can see this type of this type of switching of n- titles and names based on functionality in several places in the Bible. So now he's referred to as Isha Elohim to point out that he is functioning now as the man of God, the one who's going to tell her what to do. So she, we're not really, she doesn't really, we don't really get information what she asked, but it's very obvious that she's asked him, so what do I do now? And she says, and he says to her, Go sell the and go sell the oil, and go pay your debt. And you and your sons will live with whatever is left. Okay, so um, he's basically taking care of the specific situation she was in. He's taking care of her future as well. So being loyal to God is also not about specific situation at the time, but also taking care of people in the future. But we also have something that was done in public, but something that was also done to her privately to make sure that everyone understands the dynamic of how God works, but also to make sure everyone understands that God is still there and God is still functioning in the background, even in a period where people were very doubtful. And this is the thing. I think a lot of us don't really realize that the questions that we have today and the difficulties we have today are not too different than difficulties they had back then. Old school historians, for example, from the Age of Enlightenment, believed that humanity repeats itself and history repeats itself because humanity has a nature. Now, I had a professor who said that's not really true. This was a very old school veteran professor. He was he he was teaching for for decades, and he said it's true and untrue simultaneously. Human beings tend to react the same way. This is why psychology, for example, works more or less because it. it kind of figures out what happens with people, but psychologists have to work on the specific person each individual time because H syndrome has its own structure of what happened with that specific person, but we can still see generalized ideas. Now, I'm not a big fan of psychologists, uh, but I think that there there is a lot of plus in from, pluses that come from the study of the field, and um, 
same thing happens here, kind of, that we have our own specific situations. Like, for example, a lot of secular people today, and a lot of people saying there, you know, there's no God and stuff like that. People back then had the same had the same discussions, but from a different point of view. So we need to understand that these stories are relevant, and this is a very important thing. The Bible is relevant to our, to our very day because it still deals with a lot of the questions that we have today as well. Because humanity kind of changes, but not exactly. So now we have our second story, and I'm sorry I'm rushing through this. There's so much to do and so much to say, So, I'm just, and I want to keep this recording not two hours long because I can't go that long on this one. Uh, and we still have... 30 verses to go so i have to rush through this so it's and and as you can see i'm also kind of kind of translating not translating directly like i usually do so verse 8 tells us another story so there's a woman from a place called shunem which is in northern israel uh there's a bit of a debate where exactly this shunem place is uh but some people say um that um shunem was a city not too far away from where i live because i live uh in the valley of zvulun and the, the next valley next to us is the Valley of Israel. So this is stuff happening basically in my backyard, kind of, so to say. Uh, though Israel was a much more important valley than the Valley of Zvulun, because here we mostly had villages, there we had Megiddo and the city of Israel. That's where municipality was. There was also the famous city of Yokneam. But our region is also uh, much more open to the ocean. So this was the pathway from the ocean and to the ocean, and then you travel through, and then you get to the Valley of Israel. So one of the some of the most important routes actually go through my area. And to this very day, specifically Road 70 is what's known as Road 70 here in Israel still functions. So this is apparently in the Valley of Israel, um, and basically, it's it's basically we can call this the, the southern eastern Galilee. It's a bit of a funny way how it's divided up. My area is considered to be still kind of like, kind of Galilee, kind of, of sea, uh, the, the coastal, the northern coastal plain. And there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, a debate where exactly to position everyone because there aren't clear lines, but that's already, that's already the, the, the southern eastern, or southern Galilee, I would say. It's a very, very fertile area. I've actually taken pictures of it and put it, posted them on Facebook. It's a very, very beautiful area. So this is a very central place. He's not acting outside of uh, cent- central kingdom of Israel. He's actually not too far away from Megiddo and Israel as well. He's only a, maybe an hour or two distant walk from, from some of these places. So this is all happening in the center. This is not some remote story far, far away. And I think that's very, very important because it makes it clear that these are people who are known, people who are famous, people that you could see and meet. And that's why that story with the king who turns around to, I can't remember exactly who it was, it might have been Gehazi himself, and says to him, tell me more stories about your master. And he says, and this, this, this man shows up, he says, oh, that's the, that's the man and everything, or it might have been the woman. Again, I don't remember the story exactly. And um, and basically, th- th- this is something that was much, much more famous. So this, these are these are not stories of someone in some remote place. Um, this happened, which gives it more more credence. It says shunem. So vayhiyayom is a, is an idea of switching from one story to the other. It's a mechanism used in storytelling. And he passes Elisha passes in a place called shunem. There's a there's an important woman. Here the term gdola doesn't mean just doesn't mean big though if she's important she might have been also overweight a classic way of knowing someone with wealthy back in the day was if they were overweight today actually a lot of overweight people are poor that's the exact opposite because food's so abundant they buy but they but it also is garbage food then they buy a lot of it and it has too many calories in it 
back then, you know, food was cleaner. Water wasn't necessarily that clean, but food was, tec- food was technically more cleaner. So if you had more food, you could eat. But if you didn't, then you were thin. So gedolahi probably means wealthy. But the hezak bo lachem, she held upon, she held him, she stressed on him. She said, "Please come over and eat bread," which means come join us for a meal. And and the thing is that really what she's trying to do is this is what the next part of the verse says. She's really trying to convince him to be. Uh, to, to come over as much as possible. So she's a very strong uh, person of faith, and she wants to be associated with the prophets. So she says the do- doors are always open, and she actually starts insisting inviting him over. And she says, And it was every time that he passed through, He will turn over to go eat bread, which means he was convinced this is a person who wants to support him, because like Levites, um, prophets had... Couldn't, wouldn't really have time to work because their job requires them to be involved with society, which means they had to have people to support them. So he turns and he goes to eat bread. So he says to so he says to her husband. So she sorry, she says she says to her husband, sorry. Um, she says to her husband, it is that I know for this is a man of Elohim, Kadoshu, he is holy. Now this is this is a really, really, uh, there's a really funny, well I wouldn't say funny, but there's a really strange midrash about how does she know that he's a holy man of God? And the midrash starts asserting some weird things like he wouldn't do this and he would this wouldn't happen with him and so on. I'd rather not go into the details of what exactly it all means, or what exactly they're saying, what exactly it means. But um, there was like these signs of knowing his her, like for example, he doesn't really speak with women and certain occurrences don't happen with him. And and that's really throwing into the into the text things which are which are probably not what not what the text means. What she's really saying is she's trying to convince her husband of a certain idea, and this is why she enforces this by saying, "I know that he is a man of God and he's holy." Uh, he passes upon us all the time. He basically on his on his road he always shows up. So we hear a side, another side of the story of him where he does travel, um, and he's he's part stationary, part traveling. Um, and here we hear, we hear in this story, we actually hear more, we hear both where he's traveling and stationary. So in verse 10, she proposes the following. She says, We'll make some upstairs wall, you know, basically build something with a wall around it. We'll place a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp. When he would come to us, he will he will turn to there. He will he will rest there. They're basically trying to base, give him a, an, another home, a secondary home, which is really interesting because that gets contrasted probably to the idea of him having his own place of dwelling, which means that he he made sure he always had his own place of dwelling, his own home. That it doesn't feel as if he's exploiting people. So he will sometimes rest there, but he never made it into his actual home, which maybe is a way of describing his character. So it says and it was the day of the. He showed up one day. And he came there. And he, and he, he turned to the, to, the, to the upstairs chamber and he rests there. And he said to Gehazi, and there's a bit of debate what the name Gehazi really means. It might, might be similar to the idea of Gehizayon, as we hear later on in the latter books, uh, the, um, a valley of vision. Maybe his name is supposed to be a person who's connected to visions like his master, but he doesn't have visions not too sure exactly what it means. This actually might not necessarily be his real name, as I've suggested before in other situations. 
But the name Gehazi is so weird, I would maybe argue it is his real name. It's a very unusual name, and we don't really know how to ex- explain it. So he says to Gehazi, his, 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 his servant, Call this Shunamite. And she called him, and he called her, and he stood, and she stood before him. So it seems to be that she entered the room. Um, and usually, um, well, we'll carry on. You understand what the issue is. He said, he said to him, to Gechazit, please tell her that you have feared this great fear. Basically, she charada here is to actually move around, do a lot of things to prepare for someone. What can I do for you? Is there anything I can talk to the king for you? Or to the minister of, of the army? And he said to her, I am I'm dwelling amongst my people. So verse 14 says, And, and he actually, Elisha is saying, no, Elisha is actually saying to Gechazi, what, what can I do? What can I do for her? So Gechazi actually is a lot more involved. And usually this is understood as being that, that Elisha was actually unaware of his environment because he's so holy. I'm not too sure this is really what the text is saying, but this is a very, very common interpretation. So um, he so he says to Gechazi, what do I do with her? So he, Gechazi says, Vayomer Gechazi, aval benen isha zaken. He says, but however, her, she has no son, her husband is old. Vayomer kerala, and he said, call her. So probably she left. She said, I don't need anything, and she left. She doesn't want to bother the prophet. She only wants to make sure he has everything. So Yomer Kerala, he says, call her. He called her and she stood in the entrance. This is usually understood as being, again, she, he's so holy, he doesn't see her. She's so, she's so pious, he doesn't want to appear before him. But standing in the entrance is really about, uh, first of all, it might actually indicate that she's a very, very humble person in overall. But also there's a protocol here where you don't just barge into someone's room. You knock on the door, like we do today. You knock on the door. And you wait in the entrance until you're invited in. I, for example, follow this protocol to a T, where a point where I sometimes knock on people's doors and they yell out, it's open. And I might open the door, but until I actually hear someone say to me, enter, I will not enter. I have certain friends who, when they know, they recognize my knock, but they also know if they say it's open and the door opens, but no one actually comes in, they know it's me. Uh, and it's it's a, it's it's a politeness that you have that, that I think is necessary for mankind because we need to understand that people's houses, this is their privacy. Even the living room, this is still their privacy. So she's respecting his privacy because they gave him the room. This is not; She's not seeing this as her room. She's seeing it as his room, and therefore this is a, his apartment. So there's a protocol of, of, of um, not modesty, but a po- po- protocol of politeness that exists here. So he sees this, and he says, says to her out loud, he says, He says, to this time, now you will become Haya. Haya means a woman who has given birth. It's a term. It's actually a term that was used all the, all the way into Mishnah and Talmudic Hebrew. But it says, to, to this date, now, which means now next year, you will be, you will be um, a woman who's given birth. At Choveket Ben, you will be holding a son. And she said, Al Adoni Isha Elohim, please know my Lord, the man of Elohim. Do not lie to your to your servant. So she she's so humble that that she she's basically saying kind of a degree I'm not worthy. She's not saying I don't believe. She's saying I'm not worthy. You know God hasn't given me a son so far. I'm doing whatever I can to to at least to at least accommodate 
a man of God, so I can still have an a still kind of association with God, which by the way might, might be one of the reasons why she did what she did, not in a negative sense, but actually in a positive sense, that she wanted to feel a closeness to God because children were considered to be the blessing of God. So if she can't have a child, at least she has a prophet she's connected to that she can feel close to God. Because we need to understand, I, I have friends who struggled for years to have children. I have friends who, who don't have children yet. I, I have I have friends who can't have children. I, I have a friend that just gave birth, and it took him years, been married for years and years and years, and she suffers from a certain syndrome that really got in the way, and it took a very long time. But in the end, they had they had twins. I remember I went to I went to the to the Brit Milan to the circumcision ceremony. It was such such a beautiful thing. And and it, it, but until you don't until you're trying to have children and it doesn't happen, you feel the dis, you feel the distress. And in the ancient world, this is how they felt. They felt that if you don't have children, it's something from God. And I still believe it's something from God. The probability of having a child, if you really read about it, because we're used to seeing children, but the probability of life actually happening is, is a lot more complex than most of us realize. And more women have miscarriages than people actually realize. I have a friend who's, who's he and his wife got married not long ago, and they're trying to get pregnant, and he called me up and he asked me about it. And I said, yeah, well, you know, she had a miscarriage. He said, is, is this normal? And they said, yeah, it is. It happen, actually happens more commonly than you realize. Uh, so we have to understand that the probability of life is 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 really um, is really complex, and, and 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 having children wasn't a given back then, and it's not a given today either. You know, a lot of people have children, but a lot of people don't as well. So we we, we don't understand this. So when you say some of this, and if a person's been married for a very very long time and they don't have children, and they say, oh, you're going to have a child very soon. The the shock here. And, this, this, and, and basically saying this, you know, maybe I don't have children because God decided I'm not worthy. So she, she's not exclaiming out of not believing. She's exclaiming out of it's, you know, God, it wasn't God's will so far. But she's also, she's, she, she believes him. She's, maybe there's an element here of shock because probably this is the one thing she's always wanted in her life. So... He turns around. This is a this is a so this is more of a private story. But again, a woman who's everyone knows who she is. Her husband. She's a very famous woman. She gives birth after a year. That's pretty serious. First of all, he associates the idea of like Sarah and and um, and Rivka and Rachel who didn't have any children. By her having a child with an old husband, um, is considered to be a divine miracle, a miracle of life. So it says in verse 17, immediately to make sure that no, to, to, to jump ahead in time in one year to prove that this actually happened, it says, The woman became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. To this specific time, proving that this is exactly based on his prophecy to show that God is involved through his prophet and you need to listen to the prophet. She became a woman who gives who has given birth. Asher diber elia Elisha, Elisha spoke to her. Vigdal hayalad, and the child grew. Vahi hayom, and it was the day. So again, we're skipping ahead of time. So we're skipping several years ahead. Vaitzel aviv elakotzerim, and he went out to his father, to the harvesters, to the reapers, because of the fact that this is what children did. At a certain age, they start working in the field, like in the family business. This is how it was. Education was a very, very marginal thing. You were only educated if you were really, really wealthy. And education back then wasn't the exact same thing as education today. It wasn't, it wasn't sometimes the analysis of data to a point where all you have is just data and analyze, analyze the data. Things were very, very practical. So if you, if you were educated, it had a practical side to it. 
So it raises questions about philosophy and overall research or, or art history and some other professions, other things which are taught at university, which one must wonder if they're even worth studying. So it says in verse 19, Aviv Roshi Roshi said to his father, my head, my head. Basically, he's having either sunstroke or maybe just a stroke. He's, something's wrong with him. And he said to, the, to, the, to his servant, he says to the young man who's with him, carry him to his mother quickly. And he carried him and brought him to his mother. And he, he sat on her knees and he, until the noon and he died. So this wasn't this is not necessarily sunstroke because he went out in the morning. So this must have been some maybe some kind of a syndrome, something wrong with him in overall. Today, doctors will have a, a, you know, a lot of discussions of what exactly happened. This might be something neurological. Um, we, we can't know. There's no actual way of knowing what exactly happened to him here. So, so she is a woman of faith, and she trusts the prophet, and she trusts that what he told her was truth. He says, And she, she took him up, and she laid him on the bed of the man of Elohim. So the symbolism here, this is where he sleeps, there's holiness here, let's put him down. And there's actually, this is this the bed is comparable to the staff, which is mentioned later. Everyone's perceiving this as being some kind of power that, come from, that comes from the prophet, and end up, the prophet actually has to physically go and resurrect the child, because it's the presence of God that's really what brings the child back, not the bed, not the staff, even though these are symbolic of the prophet. It's not the prophet. It's God that does everything. This is the, this is a bit of a misconception. There there could be some criticism here towards Elisha himself as well, because he sends Gehazi, but it's but the people in the story are paying more attention to what things really to the prophet and not God. So there's a certain element of criticism here that even even great people can make this mistake. To some degree, Moses made the same mistake as well because he says, he says, listen, the rebellious ones, will we bring water out of this rock for you? And by saying, will we, that's where Moses actually made the mistake and he, this is why he was actually punished. There was a certain, um, how, how would I say, a certain arrogance, I would say, that came with this. And this is, this is a warning sign to us, to the simple people, that we need to be very, very careful with things. So she places him on the bed on the bed of Isha Elohim. She closed the door and she left. Again, it links us to the previous story. Setting into the private. And then also door closing. There's a, whole, there's a lot of symbolism here of door clothing. closing. Door closes in the previous story. It's, it's hope. Door closes here. It's hope, but not exactly. There's, there, but there's hope here by closing the door that some miracle is going to happen behind the closed door. And it does, but it takes, it takes two tries. In the previous story, it, takes, it doesn't take any tries and it just doesn't stop. Here, there's a bit of a back and forth situation here of closing the door. It doesn't happen on the bed. Maybe she put it on the bed hoping something happens. She saw nothing happened. Close the door, run out. What we're about to read here, Gehazi comes, it goes, close the door, put the put the stuff, doesn't happen. Elisha the third time has to show up, close the door, and actually it does happen, but he has to try multiple times until the child actually wakes up. There's there's a hint here to don't forget where this actually comes from. So it says but verse 22, Isha, she called her husband. Send to me one of the young men, one of the servants. And one of the one of the one of the asses, and I will run, I will hurry to the man of Elohim, and I will return. So, sister, why are you going? Why are you going to him today? 
today, there's nothing unique about today. Lo Chodesh ve Shabbat. It's not a new moon and it's not a Sabbath. Show, clearly shows that Shabbat and Chodesh, the Shabbat and the new moon, are not the same thing. But what it does indicate to us that during the new moon and during the Sabbath, these were times that people would go to the temple, people would go to see the prophet. These were times where people were involved in communing with God. It indicates that Osh Chodesh, the new moon, was actually something that had importance. And, and I don't know if they necessarily didn't do any work on that day, but what we do see is that this was a day that was important. They probably took the time to, to be before God and maybe, I don't necessarily to rest, but to take the time to reflect about being focused on God. That's really a really important thing because with, with daily life, we start forgetting, we get so involved that, that you know, you forget. This is why, you know, Judaism basically said, make sure that you have time to study, make sure that you pray several times a day. Don't forget where things come from. This is what the Torah warns. It says, you know, you will come and you will become fat and you'll forget where, where everything comes from. So it's making sure that we understand that we don't. So people made sure during Shabbat they would do this, during the new moon they would do this. This is basically kind of like a, a counter response to time by saying, Time, we don't care about you. You have to stop because God's speaking now. And that's a, it's a really interesting idea of, of, of ignoring time to, to preserve the much more important thing that existed before time, before there was light. So um, and he says it's not a new moon, it's not a Chodesh, and it's not a Shabbat. It's not a, it's not a Sabbath. Chodesh, by the way, relates to the word Chadash, which means new. This is why you know, in a lot of Semitic languages, this term really refers to the new moon. She says, peace, no, there's nothing wrong. So she put a, she put a wrapping on the donkey, a, a saddle of some sort, and she said to, the, to her young servant, leave the donkey and let's go, and go. Now, do not stop me from riding unless, uh, unless I tell you. Basically, hurry, we're not, we're not waiting for anything. And she went and she came to the man of Elohim, El Hara Carmel, to Mount Carmel, which is a mountain that I used to be able to see from my window, and nowadays I can't because of all the buildings they built in my area. But Mount Carmel is, is very large, and you can see it from a distance. So he's obviously sitting somewhere in Mount Carmel. It's possible he was sitting not too far away from where, where uh, Elijah did his miracle. Maybe that's why he was there. He felt that this is where he can strongly connect to his teacher because this is the biggest place of miracle that happened. So she goes into to Mount Carmel, it was when the man of Elohim saw her, and he sees her from, in front of him from a distance, he says to Gehazi, his servant, there is the, there is the, the, uh, the Shunammite woman, now run towards her, are you at peace? Is your husband at peace? Is your child at peace? And she said, peace. She said, everything's fine. And she said to Isha, so she, she's not interested. She's she, she not talking to everyone, not telling anyone anything. She wants to speak directly to the Prophet, not, not allowing the information pass on through anyone. And I'm not too sure why she does this. It's very unclear to me why she does this, but this is what she does. So, she came to the man of Elohim to the mountain. And she grabbed a hold of his legs, begging. Basically, she is down on her knees. And she's begging. And, and, and Gehazi came forward to push her away. Gehazi is, we kind of get an idea of who Gehazi is from this point onwards, where, where he's the one, he, he, he tries to push her away. He, he, 
he's not a nice person. Let's put it like that. And it's very it's very strange that, that Elisha wanted such a person to help him. Maybe there were some elements of his behavior that was very were very very useful for him at the time. But we do we do start seeing the deterioration in Gehazi's behavior. In the first story, in the first part of the story, he's very nice. He speaks for her. He helps her. He advises to bring the child. So he he you know. Elisha is the one that can't see, Gehazi is the one who can see. Here the, the characters are flipped. Elisha is the one that understands, Gehazi is the one who doesn't. Gehazi might be a little arrogant here as well. We, we took care of her, what does she want now? Why is she jumping on the prophet? We gave her a child, this is, this is the big thing. But Elisha is also partially blind here. He understands the problem, but he's also partially blind because he sends Gehazi. And he should have realized Gehazi was not the one to send because of what Gehazi just did here. So again, there, the, the, the Tanakh has no problem describing the weaknesses of some characters. So it says, Leave her alone. Let her go, for her spirit is bitter to her. The Lord has made, it un, has made it unseen for me. He's hiding this information. Something's happening I don't know, I don't see. And he did not say to me. And she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? She's not referring to Isha Elohim. She's not referring to him as, 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 as anything. But she says, My, my Lord, I, I didn't ever ask for you for a child. She said, wasn't it so that I said to you, do not deceive me? Do not give me, do not give me false hope? And Elisha immediately understands what happened. He knows something, was, well, something happened. He says, He said to Gehazi, Put your belt around your waist, basically prep yourself for a travel, and take my staff with you. And go. And if someone, if you meet someone on the way and they bless you, no, don't bless them. And if they bless you, don't don't answer. And you place my staff on the face of the young boy. So there's an interesting idea. Again, the same way she wasn't talking with anyone, she just carried on. Elisha does the exact same thing. Maybe there's a there, maybe there's an issue. Maybe there's this element of when something when something is super super urgent, you don't talk with anyone, which is the same way. You have time running through. So it might be that Elisha means that there's a there's a window here. She understood there's a window. He understood there's a window. But they're both blind to God's will here. She doesn't know why God has taken the child away. Elisha doesn't know why the child is taken away. But we see a parallel here that she travels without stopping, without talking with anyone, without telling anyone. Elisha does the exact same thing. So when there's something that has to be done for God, you don't stop. Because she probably... she. she complains, but she probably also understood there's a purpose to all of this. But there's a, there's a lot that I, I can't really tell why it's specifically happening in this manner. But there's obviously a principle of urgency here. So in verse 30 it says, Vatomer Emahanar, and the, the mother of the young boy said, now she's presented as the mother of the, mother of the child, she, she's very, very concerned. As the Lord lives and as you live, as if I leave you, and he got up and he walked after her. So he's sending Gehazi as a rush, run forward, run forward before us. Because Elisha is probably not that young, and he needs someone who can run really, really fast. He says, this is urgent, run, take care of the boy. We probably only have a small window to revive him. But she says, I'm not going to leave anyone. I, basically, she's saying, I want you to come with me. I'm not going to leave Elisha here. 
but I also don't want to. I also don't want to go. Not go back home. So she's basically convincing him to go with her. So he gets up. And he came, got up, and he walked after her. And Gechazi went before them, basically ran forward. He placed the the the, the staff on the face of the young boy. There is no sound. There is no voice, and there's nothing to hear. Lakshiv usually means to listen. So there's no sound. He's not moving. There's nothing going on. And he returned to, before him. He left. He put it. Nothing happened. He waited. Nothing happened. He, so he ran out forward to, to greet them again. And he said to him, saying, The boy has not woken up. Verse 32. And entered into the house. It was that the young boy is dead, laid on his bed. The reason we get all these extra details is to, to produce the drama. We're slowing down the story to the point where the child suddenly does wake up, but we're, there's tension. It's like that moment where you slow down a movie and it's slow motion, expecting something to happen, or, or we're reaching that tense point in the story where everything suddenly slows down, everything is revealed. And this is where we go all these details over and over again. So it says, now, now the miracle is going to happen. He, close, he, he enters and he closes the door with them, both of them in the room. And he prayed to the Lord. Now he's, un, now he's understanding what actually has to be done. So he prayed, first of all. And he got up onto the bed and he laid on the boy. He placed his mouth on his mouth, symbolic of the idea of breath of life. Basically, human upon human, basically the idea of tra- probably transmitting life from one person to the other. He is I and I am him. He probably gave him, prayed to God saying, take from my years and give this to the boy. There's a chance that's what he prayed. This is why he's mimicking their position. And he's, he's, he's putting his body on top of him to present the idea of transition from one to the other. So there's a chance his prayer really did talk about give him for my life. And this actually might explain why later on we hear the story that he became sick and it was the sickness that brought his death. It's possible that after the story, because Elisha had to give him his own life, he weakened his body. And this is why his towards the end of his life he became sick a lot because he gave away from his own, from his own life to make the child live. And we don't really always connect these points. And that's probably what's going on here. So it's So veighar is to is to physically be on top of someone, physically um, 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 to lean on top of someone. So it doesn't mean that he just placed, it was literally he placed his body on top of him. And then the the, the flesh of the young boy became warm. Vayashov, and he returned, repeated it. He walked back and forth. He did this several times. And he got up and he leaned upon him. And this boy sneezed. Zarar is a very, only appears here, but we understand it probably means to sneeze. And he sneezed, he sneezed up to seven times. And the boy opened his eyes. Usually when someone sneezes, we say, bless you, because it was a sign of sickness. Here it actually is used as a sign of bringing back to life. Maybe the sneezing is the expulsion of, the, of whatever sickness it was, or the forced resuscitation of the body. Not very clear how sneezing actually steps in here. And he said, call, called Gehazi, he said, call this Shunammite. And he called her, 
And she came to him, Vayomer Se'ivaner says, carry your son. Imagine the idea of him stepping away and pointing, look, he's back. We made a promise and he's here. And Elisha took this promise so seriously, he, he probably gave of his own life to make sure this boy lives. He's a man of, he's a true man of his word. This is so dramatic. She came and she fell on his, in front of his feet, so grateful of the entire situation. And she bowed down to the ground as a sign of respect and gratitude. This is not worship. Some translations might say worship, or some translations sometimes choose worship when it's comfortable for them. But bowing down to someone was a very, very common practice of showing respect. If I remember correctly, I think I wrote an article about this somewhere on my website. Um, she carried her son and she walked out. And this is this is the end of the story. It's a very dramatic scene. But Elisha symbolizes here the idea of keeping a promise. Elisha is supposed to symbolize God here as well. And he made a promise and he stands behind his promise and he gave him his own life to allow this child to live. And God does it. God basically made a promise and God will make sure that anything happens, even if it costs his, his, his honor and glory and his, and his oaths, where he says, if you do this, I will punish you, God says, but there's a point where, where certain promises to, to go over others. And if you, have, if you make a promise, you have to stand behind your promise. So as I've pointed out, God is the God of faith, He's the God of promise, He's the God of emunah, who stands behind His word, and if He promises something, He will do it. Even when things look dire, He still can step in and help others and, and, and redeem humanity from, from, its, from, its, uh, from its uncomfortable situation, whatever that situation may be. So I hope you, again, I hope you enjoyed this, this discussion. Uh, again, don't forget to visit HebrewInIsrael.net. Uh, also the Facebook page, Hebrew in Israel. And again, if you've enjoyed these and these have blessed you, please consider uh, blessing back by supporting so I can get more research material, spend more time in the library and pulling out all this information and getting a hold of books when they're not available in the library. Uh, it, a lot of research goes into these discussions. A lot of thought goes into these discussions. And uh, so as I said, if it has blessed you, please consider blessing me back. Kol tuf.